It is a great honor to be up here. I was last here one global pandemic ago in 2019, way back in the old days before whatever world we live in now exists. So I am very grateful for the opportunity. On July 30th, 1967, on a trip to the Chesapeake Bay, a then 17-year-old girl became a quadriplegic after misjudging the depth of the water in which she was diving into. The name of this individual, Johnny Erickson. That name may sound familiar to a lot of you. She has since been married. Her name is now Johnny Erickson Tata. And her ministry, she is a Christian radio host and she runs her own ministry primarily focused on the disabled for many years. For the years that followed her injury that left her, like I said, a quadriplegic, she struggled with a lot of the same types of emotions and thoughts that you or I could probably think. She recounts some of these emotions in the book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, where she expresses that she spent days on end laying face down, staring at the hospital floor, filling with resentment and anger and bitterness over what had happened to her. But over a period of time, she came to realize that with the struggle that was now going to affect her life forever was not God's indifference or cruelty. This is how she explains it. In her autobiography, in reflecting upon her injury, Johnny said, God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone has this privilege. I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of an experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, even joy. That is an amazing perspective. See, Johnny understood what so many of us often fail to understand is that trials and tribulations in this life are to be met with joy and worship of God. I referenced the last time that I was up here. I had the privilege of looking at the first few verses of the book of James something that I want to continue looking at this morning. And so, since, you know, what, 19, 17, 16 uh, major life events are in our way from that last time that I said anything, just some quick background information on the book of James. And to do that, I want to give the direct context of our passage this evening. And that's the first four verses of the book of James. So James says, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We see in these opening verses, James identifies himself as the author of this epistle. 
the first word, James. And he identifies his audience with the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. These are Jewish believers who have been scattered because of persecution. And James is writing his epistle to them to help encourage them to weather the persecution that they are facing now and the greater persecution that is just around the corner for the church. And to do that, James includes in his letter a number of tests. As you read through the book of James, you can see numbers of tests or scenarios that play out that James says, look at how I am explaining how a believer handles these situations. If you can look at your life and what I'm writing here and they match up, you can have confidence that your faith is real and that there is something better waiting for you on the other side of the persecution. In the opening verses of the book of James, he deals with the topic of trials. This is our direct context. You see, trials are inevitable. They are inevitable. Difficult times are going to happen. They are guaranteed. No one is exempt from them because of wealth or status or occupation or any other differentiating factor. We will all suffer hardship in this life. James guarantees it in verse 2 when he says, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. They are guaranteed. And I'm sure that everyone in this room this evening can attest to the fact that that's a true statement. This morning, Joe expounded on the difficulties that are facing our country as a whole. No one is exempt from difficulty. What trials do we face? It could be the death of a loved one, a family member, friend. We could suffer an injury like Johnny Erickson Tata that leaves us permanently handicapped or even a less serious injury that enables inconvenience in our life. We can suffer the severing of relationship with family, friends, significant others. We can suffer the hardship both physically, financially, and logistically of being in a car accident. We could suffer difficulty of needing major surgery or having to relocate and move to a different area because of circumstances that surround us. We can suffer financial hardship. That's certainly going on right now. It's estimated that the average American family is spending $460 more a month than they did last year for the same goods. We can suffer sicknesses. We can suffer rejection. And this is not an exhaustive list of all the different ways that we can encounter difficulty in our life. But the truth is there. We suffer hardship. And we need to understand what do we do when it comes into our life. Now, in verse 2, James told us we were to tackle those hardships with a joy. And the reason he gave for that was because encountering and dealing with a, tr with a trial 
with joy produces something. And he says in verse 3 that knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that is a staying power to deal with trials as they come. I've dealt with one, the Lord carried me through it. I've dealt with another, the Lord carried me through it. I know that as I'm dealing with one right now, he will carry me through this one. And this has an effect of maturing us. Verse 4 states, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Dealing with trials matures us in our faith. We must learn to allow God to mature us, strengthen us, and in some cases, correct us with trials. That way we are more useful to Him and will gain better assurance of our faith. This is the context of our passage this evening. Trials, difficulties, what happens when they come into our life. So this evening, let's find our way to James chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8. James 1, verses 5 through 8. As you're turning there, I do want to apologize. My kids gave me an early Father's Day present of their cold. They redeemed themselves this, this morning. They left Sunday school and bought me candy and came back to Sunday school just to give it to me afterwards. It was, it was very kind. James writes in James 1, verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And here, what we're going to see is, how do we gain wisdom in the midst of trials? How do we gain the wisdom to weather a trial? And James illustrates with two characters here. The first we see in verse 5 is the willing father. The willing father. We see again in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James begins this section by saying, if, if any of us lack wisdom. That doesn't really carry the idea that's at play here. James isn't offering a suggestion. A more proper translation of what James is writing here is since. Since we lack wisdom... We should go to God and ask him for it. Remember the direct context of verse 5 here is verse 2. When faced with a difficult trial, whether physical, financial, emotional, whatever it is, we have a real and desperate need for God's wisdom. So, we should then go to God to get it. Too often we try and tackle the hardships by ourselves because we think that we can do it ourselves. We think that we have some kind of super spiritualness because we're Christians that we can just weather through something hard. That we don't need to ask for help. We are, as one pastor put it, a bunch of self-sufficient know-it-alls. And more often than we would care to admit, we end up being run by our feelings. I feel... Like, this is hard. I think I can do this. I'm going to just gird myself and do this. And we just try and navigate it through our feelings. And that is so counter 
to what we are told to do. As one commentator put it, sound faith is not based on our feelings, but on the knowledge and understanding of the promises of God's truth, which is spiritual wisdom. When we allow ourselves to get caught up in our emotions, we are forgetting the admonition of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, when he tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Our nature, though, is to look into ourselves. To try and find the answer in ourselves. This situation's crummy. How do I fix this? How do I handle this? How do I do this? We focus in on ourselves. James says, no, no. That's the wrong way to do it. You see, James goes on in his epistle in chapter 3, verse 17. James 3, 17, he says, Of wisdom, for that it is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. See, we need wisdom that is outside of us. We may think that we can handle a difficult circumstance, but we can't. We're too close to the situation to think logically. And so again, we act emotionally. And James says, don't do that. Go to God to get the wisdom you need. Hey, well, where do we get wisdom? Can I order it off Amazon? I got Prime. It can be here in two days. No. You see, it's not as simple as that. Job chapter 28 Job 28, Job is responding to his friend's advice. Some of the worst advice advisors you could have is Job's friends here. He's responding to them, and he says in Job 28, beginning in verse 12, he says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is far beyond that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all the living, and it is concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. Job here expressing two truths. Number one, wisdom is far more valuable than anything else that exists in this life. There is no amount of money, no stockpile of gold, no cryptocurrency, no, nothing can equal the value that wisdom provides. You could have all the money in the world. You could have Jeff Bezos' net worth with Elon Musk together, and you could buy everything that exists in this life, and you will never have anything that is equal to the weight and importance of true wisdom. The second thing Job tells us here, said you cannot get wisdom here. 
It can't be shipped to your house. You can't find it in a dictionary. Well, you can find the definition in a dictionary. But you can't gain actual wisdom here. It's not in the land of the living, he says. But where is the source of it? Job 28, 23. God understands its ways and he knows its place. Where is it? It's not here. Where is it? God knows where it is. James here is advocating that we seek true wisdom when difficulty comes. When situations arise that cause our lives to spiral and we can't make sense of what's happening or what to do next, there is a source that we can go to and we can find it. One commentator stating, rather than just theoretical understanding, biblical wisdom focuses on practical living in obedience to God's revealed will. It's a great definition of wisdom. Practical living in obedience to God's revealed will. The fool in Proverbs is not a man who is mentally deficient. That is something that, you know, we're not often given a full picture of. When we think of a fool, we often think of a court gesture. Somebody who's a buffoon who goes around and fumbles and can't put sentences together and doesn't know you can't mix electricity and water together. It's the coyote. That's not what the fool is according to the Bible. The fool is not mentally deficient. He is morally deficient. The fool is often a very intelligent person. Very intelligent. Far more than than me. The universities in this country, in this world, are full of fools. They're smarter than me. I don't consider myself a particularly bright person, to be honest with you. The fool is not mentally deficient. He is morally deficient. He ignores God's commands and lives according to human wisdom. The wise man, by contrast, lives in obedience to God. Thus, he skillfully puts together a life that is beautiful from God's perspective. Thus, affirming what the Bible says, and we'll... Stop looking at Job here with this. Job 28, 28. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Where do we get wisdom? By gaining the fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. There is no other source of it. It is God and God alone. James says here that since we lack wisdom and God is the only source of wisdom, let us ask of God. James here is first of all affirming that God is the only true source of wisdom. You see, he did not say if you lack wisdom, or rather since you lack wisdom, as I said, the better translation, go to the church and ask some people around in the parking lot after church. Hey, where do you get your wisdom? He didn't say Go and listen to the media. Go to the universities. Go listen to this philosophical thinker. No. He says the source of wisdom is God. Go to God and ask him. Secondly, James says, he says, let us ask. Hey, I want to be clear. That's not a suggestion. James is not suggesting that. James is not giving 
personal advice like he's some kind of first century dear Abby. You see, when James says, let us ask God, he is not making a request. He is not making a suggestion. He is making a command. This is an imperative in the Greek. We are commanded to go to God for wisdom. All the time, but especially when difficulty shows up. Our need for it is so much greater than. This is a non-negotiable command. We are required by God to go to Him to seek wisdom from Him in trials. And there could be consequences if we fail to do so. John MacArthur in his commentary on James stated this, this way, If a believer who is being tested is not driven to the Lord and does not develop a deeper prayer life, the Lord is likely to keep the test active and even intensify it until his child comes to the throne of grace. God is not about the business of letting his children go and do whatever they want. He will correct our behavior by whatever means necessary. In the same way, it's Father's Day, fathers in here will correct our children by any means necessary to make sure that our children grow up properly. But we would be foolish not to go to God, though. There is no other source of this wisdom. We've established that. Job explained that clearly. It's not in the heights. It's not in the depths. It's not on Amazon. It's nowhere else but God. It would be pointless to look elsewhere for it. He says, go to God and ask Him for it. Well, why do we got to ask Him for it? Why, why, Why can't He just give it to us? He's giving us the trial. Why doesn't he give us the wisdom to weather the trial with it? He could do that. You're right, he could. He's not going to, but he could. Well, why won't he? Well, for a few reasons. Number one, God doesn't force his wisdom and knowledge on people that don't want anything to do with him. And secondly, it humbles us. It humbles us. I mean, I have to recognize and acknowledge that I can't do this myself. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. We have to go to God and ask Him for help. And the great thing is, if we go to Him and we ask Him, James tells us He gives it to us. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him go and ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. He will give it to us. Number one, generously. This carries the idea of of being unconditional and without any kind of bargaining. There's no kind of ritual we need to go through. There's no special dance we have to perform. We go to God and he will give it to us. James here is trying to stress the fact that God gives unwaveringly. He wants to give it to us. There are no strings attached. You don't have to memorize any incantations or say 52 our fathers. He will give it to us. He will literally shovel it on us if we humble ourselves and ask him for it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 tell us, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And to him who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you 
who his son asks for a loaf, will he not give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You see, God is not like some kind of sitcom father who follows his family around, shutting every light off, cranking the air conditioner up, and constantly explaining to them how much things cost. My children are listening a lot. Turn the light off, please. This is not how God behaves. God's generosity is unfathomable. He says, ask me and I will lavish it on you. He gives generously. Secondly, he gives without reproach. This means God doesn't reprimand us, revile us, or insult us. He doesn't remind us how undeserving we are. We know how undeserving we are. That's the whole point of the humbling process of this. To fully get that. He doesn't remind us how wicked and sinful we are. How he had to save us from our sins. He doesn't remind us of that. He doesn't chew us out for not asking sooner. Hey, you know, I would have given you the wisdom sooner if you only you would ask. You could have had it yesterday. He doesn't reprimand us on needing wisdom again. Didn't I just give you wisdom last week? What did you do with it all? It's not how God behaves. He gives wisdom to us without hesitation, without reservation, and without reluctance. This is the same kind of picture painted in the 81st Psalm where we read in Psalm 81 verse 10, I the Lord am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We serve a God who loves us and will lavish wisdom upon us, who will carry us through anything that he places in our life. He is infinitely willing to aid us. You shift focus here from the willing father now to verses 6 through 8, the waiting child. James 1, picking up in verse 6, but he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There are no strings attached on God's generosity, on the wisdom that he gives us. However, he wants us to ask, but he wants us to ask in faith. You see, anyone can just say the words, oh Lord, help me, but have no confidence in the words that they've just spoken. Again, this is not just speaking of somebody merely going through the lip motions of asking God for help. God is looking for us to ask him with confidence. With a genuine confidence, an unwavering trust in God's character, his purposes, and his promises. Our request to him must be backed with genuine faith. We have to believe that when we ask God for help, that he can help us. We can't just say, man, Lord, if you could, 
would you please help me? If not, I understand it may be beyond what you're able to do. No. We ask in genuine trust that he can help us. He is able to. He will carry us through a trial. He will give us the wisdom to handle what's happening to us with the hope and the joy that we know and have confidence that on the other side of the trial, on the other side of this life, awaits for us something that is far better than any difficulty we may face. That he is better than all of it. That he's in control of it. We need to understand that any difficulty we're facing, however hard it may be, is being given to us by God. It is in his hand. He has put it there. It is not outside of his control. And therefore, we can trust him to carry us through it. What keeps us people from asking? What keeps people from asking God? Well, some people doubt that God will give them what he what they need, or what they think they need, rather. Or they don't think that their situation merits God's attention. That's irrelevant. Sure, in the grand scheme of running the cosmos, our difficulty may seem insignificant by comparison to maintaining the force of gravity and molecular bonds throughout the universe. That's irrelevant, though. God chooses to have interest in us. He chooses to love us. He chooses to do all of that and this because He is able to. The one way to make God in, I'm not going to say inconvenience because you can't really inconvenience God. But one way to make yourself a bigger problem is to not ask God for help. Some people, put it that way, don't ask because it may be God's fault. They're blaming God for this situation. They're angry at God. They're bitter at God for what has happened to him. And they don't want to go to him. They don't want to talk to him. So they don't ask for help. Become self-focused with the situation that they cannot seem to see their way out of And they doubt God's goodness. They doubt his help. And that inward focus all serves to develop in that person the case of the poor me's. Why is it important that we have complete confidence in what God says he will do? It is a matter of loyalty. Is a matter of loyalty. Are we going to be loyal to God to trust Him when it hurts? Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You cannot come to God and ask for anything if you don't believe that He is able to help us that he is good and that he will supply what he says he will supply, which is everything that we need. We have to remember, faith is important. Matthew 21, 
Verses 21 and 22, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. We have to ask in faith, believing without doubting. It says, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. This is someone who wavers. This is someone who doubts. Somebody who comes to God and asks without believing, doubting what God says, It's not really asking God for anything. It's going through the motions. He sets an expectation that God will not meet his need. And God says, okay, I'll meet your expectation. I'm going to do nothing. This is the type of person who is tossed around because they have no firm footing. And in the midst of a storm... They are blown away. One commentator stated that when God is not trusted, the only course that is available to a person is to go from a bad situation to a worse one to an even worse one. The person who doubts should not expect anything from God. They are like ancient Israel who when the prophet Elijah came to them and said, how long will you hesitate between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. This is the type of person who is a Laodicean, found in the book of Revelation, who is lukewarm and will be spit out of the mouth of Christ. The person described here, the double-minded, is most tragically a person whose faith is not real. So this was a test of loyalty. This is a test of loyalty. Will we trust God when it hurts or will we trust the world? Will we trust in what the Lord promises or will we trust in how we feel? The double-minded person is an unbelieving person may make a profession of faith, but when the rubber meets the road, there's nothing there. This is the type of person who becomes resentful to God, angry at him. How could a good God bring something like this into my life? How dare he? And will turn away and look to whatever kind of resources they find that may tickle their ear. In James 4, 8, James tells us, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The inclusion of the phrase double-minded here with sinners connects the two. James is drawing a direct connection between unbelievers and those who are double-minded. This person may say the right things in the beginning, but their heart is dark, and when they ask God for things, then they ask Him like He doesn't exist. It doesn't matter how the double-minded sees themselves, though. They're called double-minded for a reason. They're a fence-sitter. 
They can't figure out if they want to be on God's side or the world's side. Whichever one is going to get them the better stuff. Matthew 6.24, the direct context of the verse is speaking about the love of wealth, but the concept is applicable here, that no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one or he will love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The person who doubts, the double-minded person, doubts God and is not committed to obeying Him whatever happens. Their heart is not fully surrendered to His will. They may be curious about God's wisdom to find out if they agree with it. But they're not committed to do it, especially if it involves being inconvenienced. This whole issue would be settled if everyone would simply take to heart the admonition Deuteronomy 6.5 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We are to trust God's promises wholeheartedly. There is no other source for salvation. There's no other source for help if you don't trust the Lord, then we cannot be a person who knows God. Trials are hard enough as it is. They're hard to get through. They're not fun. They're not joyful activities. Yet James tells us to be joyful in the midst of them. How? With the wisdom the Lord provides. He gives us understanding on what's happening. Now, it may not be a complete definition of why we may be struggling with a particular thing, but we understand that there's good that's coming of it. We also gain wisdom on how not to waste a trial. You know, too often we try and short-circuit the process of difficulties in our lives. We want them to just be over and to find the quickest route out of them. But God is trying to show us something. Something we can learn. Something that we can help encourage other people who may come after us dealing with the same situations and we can come alongside them and say, I know what you've been through. I did it too. Here's how the Lord helped me. Here's how you can trust that He will help you. Wisdom is about living skillfully in this life. In obedience to God. That's wisdom. There's only one source of that, and that's God. It is applicable to every station and situation of life that we find ourselves in, the good times and the bad. We have a God who is in control of all things, and we can trust Him even when things are upside down that He's not let the wheel go. Trials are not fun. They are not meant to be. If anyone is under that illusion, let me tell you right now, you're not supposed to have fun in difficult situations. They serve a real purpose. They expose our heart. Not to God. Okay, we need to understand. Our response in a trial and when we come through in faith, the benefit is not for God. 
God knows where our heart is at. He knows if it belongs to him already. The benefit is for us, for our own understanding. The trial of Abraham and Isaac, that wasn't for God. God didn't need to know that Abraham loved him. He knew that already. He needed Abraham to know that he loved him. Like a scientist who removes an unknown test sample from a centrifuge to identify it, we need to run the test of trials in our lives. And we can see the results plainly. When we weather a trial by God's wisdom, we can gain a greater confidence in our faith as well. You persevere to the end and you make it through a trial and your faith is intact, you can have confidence that your faith is real. Unbelievers do not weather trials and come out on the other end believing and trusting the Lord. They don't. They fall away because their heart is not the Lord's. We can take great hope in that. So ask yourselves, where do you run to when trials come? Who do you go to first? Is it yourself? Or is it God? Where is the source of your wisdom? Where does it come from? Are you looking to the Lord for wisdom? Or are you looking to the world? I'm not going to say that we get it right all the time. We don't. Or maybe it's just me. We don't get it right the first time. We mess up. We make mistakes. We sometimes look to the world when we should look to God. But at the end of it, if your faith is strength, you can take confidence in that. What's some things that we can do? Well, we should be filling our tank with the Lord's wisdom. That is His Word daily. We have a great need to be in His Word. And even more so when life hurts. Peter tells us that this is the nutrition for our souls. Like babies yearn for the pure milk of the word. That's us. We need this. This is the nutrition for our souls. And we cannot allow it to only be consumed on Sundays. If you ate food only on Sundays and then didn't eat the whole rest of the week, you would not enjoy life. Don't do that to your soul. Be in His Word. His wisdom is here. Entrench yourself in it. Second, be active about your prayer life. Commune with God daily. Seek Him at all times. Develop a deep and healthy prayer life. That's our lifeline to God. This life is hard. Life is not fun. But sometimes it is. But very short bursts. Life can be very, very hard. There are storms, big ones, that we have to weather in this life. Seek God Pray to him. Make sure you have the right equipment to live life skillfully. 
Because we cannot do it alone. We need the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, to the wisdom that you provide for us. Lord, we know that there is no one else that we can turn to when things go upside down. You are our refuge. You are our comfort. And I pray, Lord, for myself and for everyone here and who may be listening online to come to you in difficulty. And for those who may be hearing who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would save them. Let today be the day of their salvation, Lord, because we know that they have no place to go to now. God, be near to us every day, especially in trials, Lord. We thank you for your son, for your salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would never leave a place of complete and total dependence on you. In your son's name I pray, amen.